Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host today, Kevin Kelly, one of the co-founders of Delphi Digital. And today we have another special episode of Macro Matters in store for you. I'm very excited to welcome Mark Yusko, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Morgan Creek Capital Management and Managing Partner of Morgan Creek Digital Assets. Mark, thanks so much for being here with me. No, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to uh, chat in this auspicious week post-having. So lots to talk about. Absolutely. And so on a personal note, I mean, I followed your work for a long time, you know, before even I made the decision to uh, make the full time jump into crypto and this this wild world of digital assets. And I remember kind of eagerly awaiting your, your quarterly reports because you'd always have these really interesting one. They were entertaining, but you'd always have these really interesting kind of nuggets of insight uh, that I want to get into throughout this conversation. But I'm not going to make you go through the whole kind of song and dance, giving your background. We'll link to that in the show notes. Where I want to start is you sit in a very unique position in that with Morgan Creek Capital Management, uh, obviously that's focused a bit more on the traditional investing yeah. strategies. And then you have Morgan Creek uh, Digital Assets, which obviously is focused on the more kind of crypto and digital asset world. Right now, what are kind of the major themes you're seeing across, let's say, major asset classes or the kind of macro backdrop? And how is that starting to kind of formulate, you know, what are the major themes you guys are focused on right now? Yeah. So again, fantastic question and, and great place to start. And, and how long do we have, man? We could, we could talk <laughs> all afternoon about this, uh, but we won't. We'll try to, uh, I'll try to do short. I always say though, I, I don't do short. Well, right. I'm not, I'm not good at short, <laughs> yeah, but I'll try. So look, Morgan Creek was born out of the endowment model of investing. You know, I worked at Milo moderate Notre Dame, and then I worked at, at university of North Carolina and then I brought the team out and, and we brought that model. And what does that even mean? What does the endowment model mean? Well, really, basically, it just means global portfolio, all asset classes, and a, a fundamental approach to value investing. So you like to buy things that are on sale. You focus on a, a port, part of the portfolio that, that is really, uh, really targeted to innovation. In fact, I even talk about it as innovation as an asset class. Right? There's really four asset classes, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities. But innovation to me really transcends all of that. And, and so venture capital and early stage investing and, and small and micro cap tech investing all go to that point. So the cool thing to your question is I say all the time, I have the greatest job in the world. Right? I get paid to talk to the smartest people in the world about investing. Travel around the world. Well, not right now. I don't travel around the world. But travel around the world, talk to smart people. And if I can't pick up a few things, then there's something wrong. So um, to your point, we, we are thematic. So we always start <laughs> from the, the Morgan Creek set of themes. And we try to think of themes from a, a multi-year perspective. So we've got you know five to 10-year big picture themes. And that could be the emergence of uh, demographic uh, class or middle class in Asia and what that's going to do to consumption. Uh, we've got the inverse of that in the Western world. I'll call it the graying of America or the graying of the West, mm. where you know, 65, uh, 10,000 people every day turn 65, both in the US and Europe. And that is a different set of needs. You know, healthcare is a bigger deal. Um, you know, all, all kinds of healthcare systems, or we're, we're living through that now with uh, 
with the COVID crisis. Then we've got a, a theme on energy and how the whole energy world is, is transitioning from fossil fuels to alternative energy. We've got a big picture theme on this um, you know, rise of, of the Asian consumer. So we've got, you've got the middle classification of the world, which is just raising people out of poverty. But then there's this Asian focus on, on consumption as they go from manufacturing economy to consumer economy. So you throw all that together, and then we try to find managers on a global basis across all the asset classes, either stock managers, bond managers, venture capitalists, hedge funds that invest in subsectors of that theme. So let's say Asian consumer. We might find a Chinese long-short equity manager. We might find a Chinese growth equity kind of private capital manager. We might find a Chinese bond manager because we think buying long bonds in China is interesting because they have the highest yields in the world and as all yields head towards zero. Actually, I said today on the, the uh, webinar, all yields are going to go to zero, uh, negative, right? Soon. Even in the perhaps, U.S. Very soon, even in the U.S., right? So we've got it in Japan, we've got it in Europe, U.S. is next, and then ultimately China and, and some of the other Asian markets. But it's, it's a necessity when you get into this over-indebted world in which we live. And you know, one of the things that you ask about how do we view the world today is we talk about the killer Ds. So you have bad demographics in the West. So this aging population, you got too much debt, just massive mm-hmm. debt, and it's getting bigger every day. You know, we had to issue three trillion. And I always pause for dramatic effect when you use the T word, because yep. most people don't understand what a trillion really is. I mean, a trillion, right? We'd have to sit here together for 31,710 years and try to spend a dollar every second. That's a trillion. So they had to finance three trillion of those babies in the in the U.S. And there just wasn't anybody to buy Treasury. So the Treasury market had a little hiccup last week. Uh, it's fixed now, but but they're going to have to issue close to twenty trillion dollars of Treasuries. Just not sure where the buyers are. And uh, you know now you got the Trump administration making noises that they're going to try to cancel the bonds that China owns. Well, wait a minute. If you cancel the risk-free security globally, selectively, what does that mean for the Russians? Do they get worried about theirs? What about the people in Brazil? Would be a horrible decision. Actually, would cause massive Mm -hmm. global panic. Probably good for Bitcoin and crypto, but really bad for global assets, risk assets. And um, so again, I told you I didn't do short well, but that, that comes down to this, how we see the world today is you got problems in the West of the killer Ds, demographics, debt, and the last one is deflation, right? We're going to have negative inflation, not hyperinflation, not big inflation. We're actually going to have negative inflation. Mm. And that's technological deflation. That's fiat fiasco devaluation type deflation. That's um, you know, locking people in their homes, right? We basically imprisoned the global population. You know, this, this is one thing. It, it's, it's a personal pet peeve, right? The word quarantine meant take sick people and put them in isolation for 40 days, hence quarantine. Okay, that's where it came from. Now, it didn't say put well people in their home and lock them down and not let them interact or do anything or you know, make the economy run. So we're in this weird place today that the demographics, the debt, and the deflation are all conspiring against Western economies that have to devalue their currencies by increasing the supply of fiat currency 
which plays right into the hand of all the other things I'm sure we'll talk about today. And it really is an historic time in that the only other time we've been close to anything like this was in 1930. Interesting, 90 years later, and we have this 90-year investment cycle, one of the most powerful cycles in history. And here we are again, 90 years later, facing the same problems. We've had the same kind of reaction in the public stock markets. We had the big down. We had the reflexive rebound. And now we're likely to have this protracted downturn like they had from 1930 to 32. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that actually sets us up really well for some of the topics I wanted to get into, because what I love, uh, one of the reasons I love talking to people of your caliber is it's almost like we could go through the list of asset classes, right? We could just rattle them one by one and I could get your outlook for them. And, and we'll do something similar to that in a minute. Um, but I think this this kind of overarching point of the killer Ds, I love that. And when, one of the things I think people get hung up on too, when you talk about the V-shaped recovery that I think we can all admit at this point is a, is a total fantasy or fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the world in which we were, were, the global economy was fragile enough heading into COVID, right? Pre-COVID. And, and if yep. you look at like US economic data, for example, a lot of the key indicators peaked around Q3 2018, right? So it wasn't exactly yep. like the world was, you know, full throttle set for this huge kind of global global growth rebound. And so I wonder, we'll kind of go through these different asset classes. When you look at the equity market, for example, right? And we can do US equities versus emerging market equities. I know you've 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 come out and said uh, emerging mar- or excuse me uh, U.S. equities. I think it was are kind of dead money for the next mm-hmm. call it five to ten years, right? Yep. Um, just based on starting valuations, things of that nature. How do you guys view? Because because again, from a multi asset perspective, you're going to have equity exposure. How are you playing right now? Let's say that the global equity market, for example, with this kind of backdrop. Really important point, and you know, I, I if you haven't told or figured out already, I speak in hyperbole, right? You know, that's that's what I do. In fact, it's kind of funny story. Real quickly, is my wife's only seen me speak one time, and I speak a lot. I do a lot of conferences, and lots really? of really. And wow. uh, she's only seen me speak once. She came to a conference in Vegas, and uh, she came to the meeting. And at the end, she says, "You you can't say things like that." <laughs> like, what do you mean? She says you say things so forcefully. I'm like, well, what's wrong with that? She says, well, people will believe you. I'm like, well, that's the whole idea. I have well, conviction in my views. <laughs> yeah, I mean, said, what if you're wrong? I'm like, I'm wrong all the time. I'll change my mind. Yeah. Um, but she was horrified that I would would speak in hyperbole. So uh, I am prone to that. But I, I believe in in strong opinions loosely held. Because if you don't have a strong opinion, you won't act. And the thing that kills you in investing is not acting. So the problem for most investors is they don't act, they don't act, they don't act, and then they get FOMO. And they acted exactly the wrong time. So they buy what they wish they would have bought or they sell what they're about to need because they didn't act in time. So to answer your question, if I think about equities, I think about the, the, the global expansive equities. And I think the equity markets, the way we think about markets, the way we've been trained to think about markets over the last couple of decades is from a capitalization weighted perspective is just wrong. Right, it's it's the anti-value strategy. Mm. If you think about it, you buy more of something as it becomes more expensive, right. and you sell things as they become cheap. Well, that works really well in a momentum market. And if you look over fifty years, momentum works half the time. Value works half the time. Momentum works when the Fed is expanding liquidity. Okay, value works when they're contracting liquidity. Momentum works in an economic expansion. Value works in economic contraction because you buy things that are cheaper. And if we think about the world, if you go back to 1900, for example, if you bought the index, 
you would have bought 25% the UK, you would have bought 15%, 1.5% US, and then a smattering of other countries like Germany and France, et cetera. And over the next 100 years, that would have been exactly wrong, right? The UK at the time was the dominant superpower. Sun never sat on the British Empire. But as Wayne Gretzky's dad, it actually wasn't Gretzky, it was Gretzky's dad, says, you should always skate to where the puck is going, not to where the puck is. So if I look at the world today, I say, well, the world index is about 55% US equities. It's about 10% European equities, 10% Japanese equities, about 10% emerging market equities, and then a smattering of other countries. I would flip it on its head and I would be 55 plus percent in emerging markets. That's where mm. the growth is. Mm-hmm. Now you have to be careful in emerging markets to invest in the countries that don't have current account problems where their currency is vulnerable, like Brazil or South Africa. Right. But there are plenty of places like China. Like China's one of my favorite places on the planet. Everybody hates China, which I love. I love when everybody hates something. In fact, that's what I love about Twitter, is I can instantaneously get a sense of what people think. And Investing like the in the ultimate f- sentiment gauge. It's the ultimate time. sentiment gauge. Yeah. It's instant real time. And what's great about sentiment is it's the antithesis of what you should do, right? If you have an idea and everybody loves it and you feel this warm feeling inside, you're going to lose money. Yep. If you have an idea and everybody tells you you're a freaking idiot and you feel sick to your stomach, you're going to make money. In fact, if you feel really sick to your stomach, you're going to make a lot of money because if you feel really good about it and everybody already loves the idea, then it's already in the price. And so I look at the world today and I say, okay, US equities, most overvalued, emerging markets, cheapest, particularly places like China. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Japan, which is pretty good, still more, more expensive than emerging markets. And then Europe, a little more expensive than Japan, but still much cheaper than the US. And so I would invert that acqui weighting. And I would, you know, try to have an overweight to the places where I see there's more growth and more profit opportunity. The second thing I would do is in the current environment where I think we're about to enter the, the second leg or the, the real down leg of a bear market, I would be very hedged. So most of my equity exposure is hedged with a D, meaning I'm long and short, particularly in the U.S., and I have higher beta shorts than my longs um, just to, to be protection. Because... You know, Roy Newberger said there's three rules to managing money. You know, Roy Newberger founded Newberger Berman. I love him. He was one of my heroes. He went in the office every day to his 94. He managed his own money to his 101, and he finally passed at 105. And he said three rules. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't lose money. Rule number three, don't forget the first two rules. And the key to winning in investing is to truncate the downside, right? Yep. to lose less in the down markets, because then you can make less in the up markets, but the math works in your favor, right? Remember, if you're down 50%, you got to be up 100 to get even. So if you got down 25, you only got to be up 33 to get even, not 100. So the key is to lose less. And hedging, it's why if you go over 70 plus years, hedge funds outperform long-only stocks. People say, that's not possible. Last, last 10 years has been terrible. Well, yes, it has. Because in the QE era, it's been tough to hedge because anything you went short, the Fed bailed out. I mean, 40% of companies in the Russell 2000 have no earnings, negative earnings. They lose money. Their stock price should not go up, right? We were taught in school or online or however you got your information that you're supposed to buy stocks of companies that make money and go go up. But uh, that's not how it works in the QE world. So 
again, to answer your question, uh, underweight equities broadly, public equities, mm. if you're going to own them, invert the cap weighting, have more in emerging, uh, more in China, um, less in the US, and a little bit in Japan and Europe. And so when, you're, when you talk about hedging, because I think you make a really good point there, uh, are you talking about specifically, let's talk about emerging markets, hedging currency exposure, for example, because one of the things I want to get into with you is your take on the dollar, because I think obviously the dollar sits at the center of a lot of yep. these kind of broader trades right now, not only in the equity market, but, but you could argue in, in global markets specifically, uh, or more broadly, I should say. Are you talking about hedging out that, that EM currency exposure and going along the underlying you know, EM equities themselves? It's a great insight, really, really good insight that no one ever talks about. Uh, the challenge is the cost of hedging mm-hmm. uh, emerging market currency is really, really high. And so what we have found over the long term, not over a short period of time, but over the long term, you're better off not paying for the hedging and taking the diversification benefit of those currencies being countercyclical to the dollar um, by, necess- you know, by necessity. So short-term periods like this year, you know, a weak EM currency like the RIAI in Brazil has destroyed your equity returns. Mm-hmm. The problem is you couldn't really afford to hedge it because the markets are pretty efficient for that, for that uh, hedge. Right. So is a great insight probably would do it if there were more effective. And actually, blockchain technology could fix this. The blockchain technology could allow us to have more micro markets that we could okay. buy and sell um, and would allow us to create mini hedges against mini risks in a portfolio. So imagine a portfolio that doesn't have four asset classes or six asset classes or eight asset classes, but has 800. We could actually do that with blockchain, and that's coming in the future, but it's not here yet. Right, and be able to create, you know, I guess more unique kind of synthetic asset or, or exactly. even currency exposures, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, no. the example I use all the time is is real estate in New York, right? Right now, you can basically be long real estate in New York, but how about if you could be long Soho and short Midtown, mm-hmm. or long, you know, some funky neighborhood that I don't even know about because I'm not you know, cool. Yeah. And, uh, short, you know, the, the upper East side, um, where all the boomers are going. Right. So lots of things to think about and all that will be eligible to be created as we tokenize all the assets. And look, I believe every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity, every piece of real estate, every business, every asset in the world will ultimately be tokenized. And I know you guys do too. And when that happens, we'll be able to do all this stuff for now. It's just hard to hedge all the risks that yeah. you probably should hedge. And that example actually hits home with me because I'm actually sitting in Williamsburg right now. So right on the cusp of kind of Brooklyn, right across the river from Manhattan. Yeah. And again, if I had the opportunity to invest, you know, in a more, much more seamless way with lower kind of uh, capital commitments early on, even, you know, five years ago, I yep. mean, it's crazy how much this neighborhood has changed and, and continues yep. to change. Um, to that point, and this kind of gets into the security token slash tokenized asset uh, argument, because I'm, I'm right there with you. I certainly think that's the secular trend we're moving towards. I want to talk a little bit about liquidity in that space too. And I, I know that it's still an immature market. You're still starting to see these uh, new products come to market and try to find that product market fit. 
but it isn't one of those situations where let's say, for example, you tokenize Brooklyn real estate and you just build that platform, you build the ability to do that and buyers come, right? How, how, how would that change from a liquidity perspective? And yeah. Somebody on your end, right? Would you have to hire a new analyst to kind of start to dive into that sector? Like how does that actually work when it comes to, you know, Look, uh, again, really great insight. And, and the biggest challenge for, uh, this type of, of progress in, in the trend that, you know, we both see coming mm-hmm. and we know it's going to happen. It's just, how do we, how do we facilitate it? How to, how do we advance the, the slow meandering progress? Uh, and it's hard. Um, yeah. I use a, I use a, a, a real life example, similar, but, uh, in the sense of, you know, our largest investment in our venture fund is a firm called figure technologies. And Figure started as a direct lending business. Um, you know, Mike Cagney came out of SoFi, uh, decided to create a lending business to go after home equity lines of credit, a business that had basically you know, fallen away post-global financial crisis, starting to come back. And make a long story short, right? he said, I'm going to create a digital mortgage, a mortgage that doesn't take 30 days to get your money and get approval. I'm going to tell you in five minutes whether you're approved. I'm going to sign into your bank account. I'm going to look if you're getting paid, who you're getting paid by. And then I'm going to approve the mortgage in five minutes. I'm going to put the money in your account in five days. Now, the problem is a digital mortgage can't settle at DTCC, the analog system world, electronic world. So I got to create a blockchain solution. I got to create the provenance blockchain, which is essentially a digital DTCC. But now it's like field of dreams. If you build it, will they come? So now I got this great baseball field, but other than the ghosts in the movie, no one's coming. We got to fill the players. Yeah, where are the the players? Mm -hmm. So uh, the same thing's true here is the genius uh, that Mike, or the genius idea that Mike had was that he created hash as the token to power the marketplace. And then he let the individuals who are affiliated with the potential users, the buyers at a Goldman or JP Morgan or Jeffries to buy into the platform. So they would be incentivized Mm. to actually use the platform. Right. Absolute genius. And I think the same thing's got to happen in some of these other tokenized markets is you've got to find a way to incent participation. I mean, we have another investment in um, a group that they basically group called Cadence and, and they help securitize uh, or tokenize secure asset-backed loans. And that's great, except you got to find buyers. And so how do you incentivize buyers to come to your platform? And that comes from relationships and and creating these incentives through through tokens. Um, But it's it's a slow process. It's going to take time. And we made a couple errant investments early on where we thought, okay, we'll just invest. These guys will build it and everyone will come. Like they built it and they're waiting and they're waiting and <laughs> it didn't come. So uh, I, I feel the pain of anybody who, who really sees this clearly, but they don't either have the experience base, the relationships or the knowledge to, to kind of get mm. that enthusiasm built up around the marketplace. Right. And we'd love to go from, you know, zero to a hundred tomorrow, right? That the world in which oh, I think we both course. see coming is it just in my view so much more exciting than, you know, not to say the world isn't exciting now, but um, I tossed out on Twitter earlier that you and I were talking and wanted to get, you know, any yeah. random questions that people had. And one that I think ties into this actually wanted to bring up was kind of broader speaking, you know, to what you can disclose, uh, how has COVID kind of affected 
the digital asset market in your opinion and kind of the funding conditions for some of either, you know, the companies you guys have already invested in, the products yep. you've invested in, or the ones you're looking at, how has that kind of changed uh, how you guys are looking at the space? Look, it, it, I mean, clearly it has an impact. I mean, you know, we're all stuck in our, our homes, yeah. uh, imprisoned, as I like to say. And uh, it's, it's really amazing though, how we've all taken it. You know, a friend of mine said the other day, he says, yeah, you know, you imprison the global economy and there hasn't been a shot fired. Like, huh? There have been actually a couple shots fired, but um, it's it's pretty weird yeah. the complacency about it. And so, a couple of things, and and this is not different for crypto or blockchain related companies versus other startups. Yeah, you know, all, we've all seen the memos from Sequoia and others about you know you got to hunker down and and you got to you know you got to make the cuts fast and you got to preserve capital and and so yeah, that's that's happening at, at all these firms. But there are some other uh, more nuanced impacts in the uh, blockchain infrastructure-related world in that, you know, the, the adoption that we all want is contingent on uh, leadership, right, in different areas, whether it be investment leadership, like people with capital decide they're going to invest, whether it's in, you know, Andreessen Horowitz's new fund, right? They mm-hmm. have convinced a whole bunch of investors that this is a real thing, right? They went out and raised their second fund, raised $515 million. That's a great sign. So despite the lockdown, they were able to get that done. Now, why were they able to get that done? Whereas people like us or others, um, blockchain capitalists that are, we're struggling to raise capital because we're still in the relationship building mode. Right, we're out there. We need to get in front of people. We need to sit down with people, build that relationship. The nice thing that Andreessen A16Z had is they had a set of investors in their core funds who know that whatever they put their name on, they're going to do because they want right. to get more of the core fund. So they were able to do that. It's like Chamath raising his his um, uh, SPAC in the middle of, of the pandemic. You know, how do you raise seven or twenty million dollars if you can't go see people? He did it with Zoom meetings. Well, how do you do that? Well, because people were in space. And it worked out great. So that um, kind of haves and have-nots mm-hmm. is really widened in this period. So you take a company like BlockFi, you know, one of our other successful companies. They are killing it, right? People are sitting around at home. They're like, oh, maybe I'll dig into how this works. Maybe I'll, I'll try converting some fiat to a stable coin and deposit it and see if I can really get 6% interest. Mm-hmm. And they get their first dividend and they're like, oh. That's good. Yeah, this is real. <laughs> I, I like this. This yeah. is way better than one. Um, and they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on. Uh, you're too young to remember the Breck commercial. Um, that was a, a hair commercial where they had the two people and the two people. It was like the original Zoom picture. Okay. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. the original Zoomers, obviously, were the Brady Bunch, right? Because they had the nine blocks on the square right. before the, the show. But um, they weren't talking to each other. So it's a, it's a rambling answer to a really important question, which is, what's the impact? Well, a couple of things. One, the, the impact of the virus itself, really not the issue. It's the response mm-hmm. that's causing the problems. And there are two things that, that are there. One is, you know, the lockdown has restricted activity, which means companies that hadn't raised enough capital before the lockdown are struggling with raising capital, and some of them are going to shutter. Even though they have good ideas, even they have good product market fit, even if they have great teams, they just didn't get enough capital before and they just can't go out to see people. And 
owners of capital right now are basically doing re-ups, people they know, and they're not taking new meetings. Right. So that's hard. So some companies are going to struggle. Now, the companies that raised right before the lockdown, they're great. And Figure's a great example. They raised, we led that round. They raised, they're good for 18 months. They're going to take advantage. They're going to hire people who are laid off by other firms. They're going to you know, find some great engineers. They're going to you know, go into a couple of new areas. So they'll actually benefit from the lockdown. Now, the second thing that's happening is the response on the fiat side. And, and this is like, I, mean, I hate the word unprecedented because there's an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and, if you look at Google search trends, I mean, unprecedented is off the charts. Crazy, <laughs> crazy. And I, I just hate it. But, but it is actually in terms of, of dollars, not in terms of percentages, but mm-hmm. in terms of dollars, um, we've just never seen anything like this. And the amount of destruction of the purchasing power of the the, the fiat currencies around the world, in the Western world, is going to lead to greater adoption of cryptocurrencies. It's going to lead to greater adoption of blockchain solutions. It's going to lead to greater adoption of you know, alternative systems and all, you know, things that people would have said, well, what do I need another payment rail for? Because I, I got Visa and MasterCard. And you say, well, but 3% is a lot. I can do it for one or half. Right. That's better. And I go, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. And so I do think that is going to lead to greater adoption. And then the last piece of it, and, and the, you know, it, this is very narrow, but you know, Bitcoin itself is going to have a massive tailwind over the next 12 to 18 months for lots of different reasons. But the biggest reason is the currency that we all think about it in because a currency pair, right, is always against something else. Yep. Right. You don't just say the dollar. You have to say the dollar yen or the dollar euro or the dollar versus the basket or the dollar versus Bitcoin. Well, BTC USD is going to continue to rise. And I said this in I do these 10 surprises thing every January. And my bonus surprise was that the Bitcoin was going to have a great year, not because Bitcoin was going to be better. In fact, there were going to be things about it that it had to get through, like the halving and, and other adoption issues that I wasn't sure were going to go as well as they had been going. Mm-hmm. But the thing I was certain of was that fiat was going to get less good and that the US dollar fiat was going to go down, which is going to make Bitcoin look better. So whenever you see the price of an asset rise, you have to think about, well, what's it rising in? And I showed a chart today in my webinar that one of the the things that makes me less bearish than I probably would otherwise be on equity markets, U.S. stock markets, is the nominal price is what we all see and talk about. You know, it's what Trump always talks about is the nominal price. But the real price, not denominated in fiat, but denominated in gold, and we could denominate in Bitcoin even better. Uh, ultimately, but just do it in gold. Denominated in gold over the last two years has actually gone down pretty dramatically. And so we haven't had any real rally in that because gold price is going up so much. So what's happening is this money illusion. The value of the stocks goes up, but your ability to buy them Right, how much money you need, how many hours worked you need to have, how much savings you have to have to buy one unit 
is getting worse. And that's the insidious thing. And we go down the deep rabbit hole on this, which is, I think it's the plan. I think the virus was never about the virus, not never just about the virus. I think it's about this plan, which I refer to as the dictator playbook, which is you, you get in charge, you get all your cronies around you, and you concentrate the assets in those cronies, and then you devalue the currency. And throughout the history of time, that's how governments work. And that's why we have the highest wealth and income inequality in the history of mankind today. And it's probably going to get worse, not better. And, uh, and I, what I really worry about, and I, man, I really do worry about this, is this whole movement toward UBI and giving people free money is the most insidiously horrible thing you could do because now you've removed the thing that makes America great. Forget the slogan. What makes America great is our spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation. And if we take that away by saying, I'll pay you to stay home and sit on your butt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an extreme example, but I, I told the story earlier today. I was watching Wally, the movie, with my son. I have a nine-year-old. I have older kids who are 30, and then we had a bonus late in life, um, and we have this nine-year-old. And uh, for 56 and 57-year-old parents, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's awesome uh, and blessing, but, you know, it's a lot harder. The second time. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, although we're much better parents. That's kind of funny. But so I'm watching this movie with him. And there's a scene that I'd totally forgotten when I watched it 20 years ago, that the whole point of the movie is the earth's been destroyed and there's no life and it's just garbage. And there's this little robot that's packing up the garbage and just bricks and stacking them up. But this other droid comes and finds a plant and takes it back to the mothership. And the mothership's like, oh, okay, we can go back home to earth now. Well, everyone on the mothership who's been there for 700 years, is basically sitting on these barca loungers that float watching a screen all day. And they're this huge, like 400-pound blobs. I'm like, wait a second. If you don't have anything to do, and you sit <laughs> right. in the house, watch Netflix and get paid, what happens to America? What happens to our ingenuity? What happens to the value of our assets? Well, then the nominal value of the equity market can go up, but you end up like Venezuela which has the best performing stock market in the world last two years, but you don't want to own it right? because the boulevard is getting collapsed. What you want to own, if you're Venezuelan, is Bitcoin or dollars or renminbi or the digital renminbi that's coming, which will be really cool. No, that's a long rambling bunch of stuff that you didn't ask about, but no, but I think that's great because it sets up when you talk about UBI, for example, right? One of the questions I wanted to get your take on was a, we talk about, how this is kind of more from a liquidity crisis to now a potential solvency crisis. And certainly I think we can both yeah. agree that there's a lot of problems there, especially in the small business world. But also what are the odds that it's much harder for policymakers to pull back from the stimulus than it is to kind of put their pedal to the, to the, to the metal mm-hmm. right on this. Mm-hmm. So do you see, and at what point do you see policymakers being able to walk this back? Or do we just get into a kind of pseudo UBI type world? Because I forget what the exact percentage is, but a good amount of people actually make more money on unemployment yep. than they did previously, right? So what yep. is the incentive, right? We talk about incentives. What is the incentive for somebody to go out there and try and find a job unless it's a higher paying job and we need to increase the, the amount of higher paying jobs? How does, how does that not turn into a pseudo UBI uh, you know, type if, world? If I actually, I actually do have a cowboy hat. If I could reach the cowboy hat on the thing, I would put it on. I'd, I'd do my best Jimmy song impersonation here <laughs> in that you know, Jimmy talks about this so well 
in that fiat currency encourages consumption, mm-hmm. right? Bitcoin, hard money and gold too, but Bitcoin in the perfect digital gold world encourages savings and entrepreneurship. It encourages innovation because you, you only get more if you build, if you do something productive. In a world where we can push a button and create more dollars and send those dollars to people to pay them to do nothing, that's a horrific world. Right. I mean, it's an absolutely horrific world. And so to your point about incentives, if I'm incented to sit on the couch, then I will sit on the couch yep. and I will vote for the person who gives me the money. Uh-huh. And that's the crazy thing. Look at every dictatorship in the world. That's how they got in, right? They promised people, like, look at Argentina. She promised them free electricity. In Zimbabwe, it was literally free money or food. In Venezuela, it was, you know, free gasoline, right? Vote for me, free gasoline. And we're, we're getting there, right? We are getting to the point where it's, hey, if you vote for me, I'll give you money. And then you don't have to work. Well, if we don't work, See, here's, here's the one thing that, that does, again, terrifies me. Everyone talks about if you print too much money, you get hyperinflation, like Weimar Germany or Zimbabwe mm. or Venezuela. And yet we haven't, right? We actually have deflation, right? The killer Ds. Yep. Well, why is that? Well, part of it's technology and technological innovation and, and uh, keeping capacity in Slack. Part of it was we had a lot of young people, right? The echo boom, you guys, the, the millennials, um, the echo boomers, there's more kids of baby boomers than there are baby boomers. There was a lot of kids then, and young people uh, have lots of capacity, right? They have future capacity. And all that said, we, we weren't at a point where there was too much money chasing too few goods. But here's the problem. That assumes that all of that capacity that's idle can come back online and be productive. Mm. But if we now create a class of people who have no interest in coming back and being productive, we take that slack out of the system, then we actually do have too much money chasing too few goods, throw COVID in there, and we have beef shortages and pork shortages because they're having to slaughter the hogs because they can't get them to the slaughterhouses or euthanize the hogs because they can't get them to slaughterhouses. And so now we've seen beef prices go up and the pork prices go up. And that's just a little taste. That's not hyperinflation. Where we'd have hyperinflation is if suddenly a whole bunch of people say, you know what? I'm not going to work. Yet I'm going to get paid and I'm going to consume. Well, if nobody's producing and you're consuming, there's not much left. What happens? Prices go up. Prices get out of control. And that's a world which none of us want. But it is a world in which nominal stock prices, the S&P 500 or the Dow, which you know, Trump likes to quote, who talks about the Dow? Right? It's 30 stocks, right? It has nothing to do with yeah. anything. Right. And 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 it and it actually and the reason, but there's a reason that he talks about it. You know why? It's the easiest index to manipulate because it's a price-weighted index. And so Boeing, which had which had past tense a four hundred dollar share price, was a much bigger weighting than Amazon, even though Amazon was a much bigger market cap. Well, that makes no sense. So um, the the idea behind uh, talking about the Dow instead of the S&P 500 is because the Dow can move faster and can be a bigger number. And everybody likes big numbers. But that could spiral out of control. And even though we'd all be less well off, some people at the top, you know, the top 1% who own 80 plus percent of the stock would feel pretty good. 
And that just exacerbates your earlier point about the haves versus the have-nots and wealth inequality. And even, I mean, income inequality at this point, obviously, is, is continued to widen. I think, unfortunately, what, what COVID has kind of kick-started yeah. or accelerated is that industry consolidation movement, too, right, where the average worker today doesn't have nearly as much, uh, let's call it negotiating power, as they did even you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, I do want to touch on, because, because we've hit on this deflation versus inflation, which is arguably one of the kind of called hottest uh, debates right now in the, yeah. in the markets world. I'm with you in the, I think we have to deflate and potentially significantly deflate before we can almost reinflate on, on, on the, uh, yep. the uptrend after. In a world, and you can talk timeline if you want to, in a world where we have you know, substantial deflation, uh, debt deleveraging, people kind of repairing balance sheets after all of this, how do you think that Bitcoin and we'll say gold and precious metals as well, just in that camp, how do you think those assets would perform on, we'll call it on a relative basis? Yeah. Obviously well, no, no, I mean, on, on both relative and an absolute basis, they rock, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> really pun intended. Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, you know, I, I've been talking about this you know, in the kids game, um, paper beats rock, mm. uh, you know, rock, paper, scissors, but in real life, rock beats paper. And so this is a time to get real and to own things, to own real assets and the more scarce, the better. And so the reason gold has been hard money for 5,000 years, right? One ounce of gold bought a fine man suit for 5,000 years, right? It's the only currency that survived 5,000 years. You know, we've had 775 paper currencies in the history of mankind. Three quarters of them no longer exist. Pound sterling is the oldest, 381 years old or something. You know, a single pound note used to get you it used to get you a pound of sterling silver. Now it takes 180 pounds of sterling silver to get you a pound mm-hmm. note. So that's devaluation. And so every currency eventually goes away except gold. Why? Because gold is perfectly scarce. It's stock to flow ratio meaning the new stock of gold that's produced by gold miners roughly equals the amount that's consumed in fillings and computers and, and what's lost or buried in the backyard. People forget where they buried it. So the, the stock stays consistent. Like you know, people talk about uh, platinum. You know, platinum is a precious metal. It should be just like gold. Well, the problem is the price goes up. It's easy to go out and mine it. So the supply goes up too much. Right. The price falls. Can't do that with gold. Bitcoin's even better. As of Monday, it's now more scarce on a stock-to-flow basis than gold. And so, and the other benefit it has is unlike gold, I don't know if you've ever seen, I'm a big movie guy. So in the movie Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger. Yeah, it's well, classic. No, it's one of my favorites. I mean, I, I probably watched it 25 times. Easy. Yeah. And well, not the whole thing. I like, I, you know, I come in in the middle and I watch the rest it's, of it. I was going to say, that's a great movie. You can pick up wherever. Yeah, and wherever. It's just, it's just, it's just yeah. awesome. Yep. And um you know, that School of Rock, Top Gun, you know, all my favorites. But in that scene, he wins the first uh, joust, or he actually you know, wins the sword, and he gets this calf. And, you know, his page has gone off gambling, and he has to pay off the debt. And he literally takes the calf, and he bangs it on the table and mm-hmm. breaks off a leg and says, go do what you do with this. That's a really bad way to divide wealth. Right. We can go to eight decimal points in Bitcoin. And look, all the gold in the world fits in two Olympic-sized swimming pools. It's really tough to carry, tough to carry it across borders, put it on an airplane. All the Bitcoin in the world fits right here. Now, I don't have all the Bitcoin in the world. In fact, I don't have any on my phone. So any SIM swappers, stop trying. Um, <laughs> I don't keep it on my phone. But the, all of it fits right there. And it is in, infinitely divisible. And it's the perfect store of value. So 
people say, well, but it didn't work in March. Well, of course it didn't work in March. Okay, what happened in March? March, we had a liquidation. Mm -hmm. We were on the verge of total financial system collapse, literally. Like a friend of mine called me up Sunday night before the big collapse on Black Thursday and said, uh, are you still awake? No, she, she texted me, says, you still awake? I'm like, yeah. Uh, can you talk? I'm like, yeah. Says, the treasury market. I can't, I can't sleep right now either. <laughs> yeah. No, she says, the treasury market just broke. I said, nope. what do you mean it just broke? She says, well, it just broke. It's like not going to settle because they're making noise about canceling China's treasuries. And that was the day um, five, the 10 year went from 0.5 to 1.4, like overnight. Mm -hmm. And three days later was Black Thursday. Or four days later, it was Black Thursday, and, and Bitcoin's down 40%, and gold's down 25%, and the gold miners are down 50%. And he says, see, that proves it's not a store of value. I'm like, no, no, no. It proves exactly the opposite. It proves that they are stores of value. Why? Because in a liquidation, right, when Millennium and Citadel and Bridgewater are getting liquidated because they're 10 times levered in variant swaps and uh, variance trades, they had to borrow from the Fed to get bailed out. And everyone else was forced by margin call to sell what they had to sell, not what they mm -hmm. wanted to sell. And so you had a bunch of hedge funds that had bought a little bit of Bitcoin. They didn't really know what it was. They didn't really have a lot of faith in it. Look, the hodlers are never going to sell. 70 plus percent that own it, pennies, dollars, $100 yeah. cost, they're never selling. But then you had this 30% that had bought at diff different prices and they had margin calls and they needed cash. So boom, it's gone. Now we've recovered all of that in both gold, gold miners, and Bitcoin. And so to answer your question, in a deflation, if you go back to 1930, which I believe, I, th I think we're in April 1930, right? May 1930, right now. And if you look at what happened from May of 1930 till uh, March of 1932, 33, when they confiscated gold, gold miners and gold stocks were up like crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing's going to happen here. In a deflationary world where we devalue the debt, we devalue the currency, everybody gets out of lockdown and, and takes that stimulus money and, and uh, puts a little aside for a rainy day because now we know rainy days can happen. And we spend a little less. I, I made the joke on, on the call earlier today. My wife literally sent a picture of my visa bill to the kids, to our older kids, saying, your dad's visa bill hasn't been this small in 30 years. Right. Yeah. Like, that, that's true. That's actually a factual statement. Just like the number of passengers that went through TSA last week was the lowest since 1954. That's actually a true statement. So, you know, the, the change in behavior is real, and that's all deflationary. And in that environment, though, um, scarce assets, collectible cars, wine, land, gold, Bitcoin, all those things become more valuable. And you know, one thing that I, I ask people all the time, you know, what's the best performing asset in the last decade? And people say, oh, it's Bitcoin. And no, it's good. It's good. And it's the best of all the big assets. But mm -hmm. actually, the best performing asset is collectible Porsches. Because they're, what are you really? Talking? And like, yeah, because there aren't very many of them. And there are only three people in the world that can buy them. Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, and John Shirley, who is the number three guy at Microsoft. And those three guys bid it up to crazy prices because they don't want the other guy to win. So they can buy these cars and put them in a garage and buff them with a cloth. I'm like, seems like a waste of money to me, but that's the most, you know, it's the most scarce asset because you can't make more because there's only a few surviving and they want them at any price and they have more money than God. It's kind of like sports franchises, right? Why do they go up? Because there's always somebody else mm -hmm. who's made more money doing something 
you know, like Tepper buying our Panthers down here in North Carolina. Um, he's a good guy and he's going to be a great manager, I think, of the team. But, um, you know, he's like, I don't care what the price is. I'm buying it. Right. <laughs> so right. those types of assets are, are really quite good. And I think in a world turned upside down, again, not by the virus. See, we've been dealing with viruses for thousands of years. It's not the virus. Yeah. It's this plan that I believe has been in place, to your point, long before the virus, right? We had hyperinflation of financial assets for the last 10 years, not just the last few months. Mm. We've had this consolidation of wealth in the hands of the top for a long time, not just the last few months. We've had this plan, I believe, to impoverish the masses and make them dependent on the government so that the people in power can stay in power. And I talk about this on Twitter, right? There's no left, there's no right, there's no Republicans, there's no Democrats, there's no conservatives and liberals. That's all BS. There's in and out. When you're out, you do or say whatever it takes to get in. And when you're in, you do or say whatever it takes to stay Mm -hmm. in. And that's it. And so you see it from both sides, quote unquote, everyone's doing the same thing. And they're trying to bribe the masses to stay in power so that they can continue to funnel the wealth to this very small group of people. And look, central banks are complicit uh, globally, right? They get together around Davos and they make the plan and they say, okay, it's your turn in the penalty box. So your currency is going to weaken this year and your currency is going to strengthen this year. And if you, you know, follow the, the big moves, you know, it goes, China takes a year of strengthening their currency, then the US, then Europe, then the yen, and then they start over. And right now we're in one of the places where the dollar is in the penalty box. So it's got a weak, it's got to strengthen that lets the yen and the euro weaken in DXY. Now it's not dramatic. Um, and the renminbi, which everyone says is manipulated. Uh, no, the renminbi, China is, is just kicking our ass, right? I would say they're playing go why we argue about how to set up the checkerboard. So we declare tariffs and what do they do? They depreciate the renminbi exactly enough to offset the tariffs. So they never, you know, China's paying the tariffs. No, they're not. Right. We are, you and I are. Yep. No, hundred percent. I think you bring up a really good point, tying it back to fiat and talk about even just value, right. And value being very subjective, right. It's a bit basically about what somebody wants to pay for something or an aggregate. That's what markets do. Uh, I think it's really interesting because obviously what you've probably heard over and over again, especially from some of the more uh, institutional, you know, clients or investors that you talk to is, you know, what is Bitcoin backed by? Right. And you have the argument of what's fiat backed by, but I think you have this narrative that starts to craft around who's to say there isn't a value that you can put on, you know, a non-sovereign, apolitical, digitally native, censorship resistant, you know, asset that hard cap supply, asset that no one's ever really seen before. Like it's that, that argument just doesn't hold up, uh, you know, when you, when you really put it in water. And so one of the questions I want to ask you is from your, the conversations you're having, how has, cause you have the whole get off zero, kind of, uh, uh, I'll say mission. Uh, how has, yeah. How is the institutional uh, mindset or viewpoint or perspective on crypto and Bitcoin changed? We'll say in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months or even more recently with COVID and what are the, what are still a couple of the biggest, I won't say misconceptions, but things that are still holding up institutions aside from, you know, something as simple as like an investment mandate. Well, the, the biggest misconception is just as you described, uh, so I'll do it in reverse order, um, which, you know, B 
billions, right? First episode two weeks ago, you know, Chuck busts the crypto mine and he's got the two engineers there and he's saying, you know, what, what's, what's Bitcoin even backed by, you know, air, bupkis, nada. And they look at him like, what's the dollar backed by? It's like, oh, you know, the, the, the full faith and credit roads, bridges. Like, no, Chuck, it's not. Nope. If I hand you the government a green piece of paper, what do you give me? Give me gold? Nope. Give me silver? Nope. You give me future tax revenues? Nope. You give me a piece of those bridges and roads and, and defense? Nope. Currency is never backed by anything. Currency is backed by custom. That's all it is. And there have been thousands of things that have been used as currency, from puka shells to big stone rocks to you mm-hmm. know animals, literally live and dead, to pelts to pieces of paper. There's nothing that backs any currency other than faith and custom. Mm-hmm. And it's really the custom, right? If it becomes customary for you and I to exchange something, and that's why I say all the time, the miracle of Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency isn't that it goes from $1,000 to $10,000. That's not a miracle. The miracle is it went from 0.003 cents to a dollar, right? right? That, it, that it actually became custom to accept it as a medium payment. Everybody makes fun of the guy, the pizza guy. He's a hero, right? He's my hero because he's the one that allowed it to become customary to be seen as a medium exchange or store of value. Absolute genius. So that's the miracle. And so the the perception is still, you got, you know, Jamie Dimon, it's a fraud. Well, now JP Morgan not only has a full unit that studies this and competes with you guys on research, uh, you guys are better. Um, And- and not only do they have people actually trading it internally, even though they don't do that, and now they're going to lend to Gemini. Oh, okay, but it's a fraud. Well, why does he say it's a fraud? Or why does you know, Warren Buffett call it rat poison? I'm like, well, Warren, how do you know what rat poison tastes like unless you're a rat? Or his partner, you know, Charlie, says it even better. He's like, it's like trading in harvested dead baby brains. Like WTF, Charlie? Seriously, dead baby. Create brains? a mind. <laughs> why? Why do you say things that are so crazy? Well, they do it intentionally because forty-six percent of Berkshire Hathaway is financial services. Financial services get disrupted by this whole thing. All right. So the biggest resistance today from the institutional world is all these people who I admire—Jamie, Warren, Charlie—they hate it. You know, Bill Gates. It's used for terrorism and drug deals. Really? You know, Katie Hahn at A16Z says, look, I was a prosecutor for 20 years. The choice between bag of money and hands on a keyboard, I'll take hands on a keyboard every yep. single day. And by the way, the US dollar still number one, actually counterfeit dollars, number one use for drug, de- drug deals mm-hmm. and terrorism, full stop. No question. So the idea that, that all the FUD, right, fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's created to stop it, that does have impact, right? F- narratives work fear works. So there's a whole bunch of institutions like, I don't want to lose my job. I'm not going to put a big amount of money in it anyway. And you're not even asking for a big amount. Like I tell people one to 3% in the physical Bitcoin itself, another one to 3% in the venture capital around it. I'm like, well, how's that going to make a difference? I'm like, because of the asymmetry, right? Look over the last five years. If you took 1% out of a 60-40 portfolio, put it in Bitcoin, that portfolio made 9.2 instead of 7.2. If it had gone to zero, which was still a non-zero probability, not a high probability, but non-zero, it would have been seven. That's a 10 to one upside downside ratio because it's a perfectly diversifying asset because it has low diversification, I mean, low correlation. So 
to give you the answer, when we launched two and a half years ago, when I you know had Morgan Creek Capital, launched Morgan Creek Digital, team up with Jason and Pomp, we formed this venture fund, we raised some money, started investing. 90% of the people we called on wouldn't return the call. Hmm. Like, nope, not interested. It's rat poison. Warren hates it. Yep. I'm not going to talk about it. JP Morgan doesn't No. Of the one of the 10% that we got through to, 90% of them said no. Even when we got to do the pitch. So that's 1%. Okay, that sucks. Now we still raised. You know, 40 million bucks, nice, got a couple of public pension funds, very smart CIOs, great boards, fine. Now we go out to raise the next fund. Now, 70% still don't call us back. That's better than 90, mm-hmm. okay? And 90% of those still say no. So we've gone from 1% to 3%. Now, someone say, oh, that sucks. No, I'm like, that's awesome. That means I got 97% to go. So my whole you know, hashtag get off zero is I believe I absolutely believe that looking back 10 years from now, it will be fiduciarily derelict of duty to not own crypto assets in your portfolio. The same way- I was ask if, if you think the career risk has shifted from, oh no, I don't want to be the only one in that and be the fir- or the first one in that, and then everything you know, collapses hypothetically. It's a non-zero chance, right? A lot of this stuff yeah. doesn't work out. Dude, that career risk has now shifted to, you know, five, 10 years from now, this does perform and take off and outperform, you know, where were we? And, were we? and will we need to have that explanation for where we were or what we were it's, thinking? It's an S curve, right? Mm. We're, we're on the S curve. And the same way that, that the S curve, you know, we're kind of in the, in the mania phase of the S curve for Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? Kind of the, the first third before we get to rapid adoption and then maturity. We're probably in the, they're still the early adopter phase of the S-curve for right. uh, institutional adoption. And that's because, you're right, the, f- the fear of, I'm going to lose my job if I do this. I mean, look, you, you've actually read my letters. I wrote one paragraph in a 41-page letter in the first quarter of 2015, when Bitcoin was $500, saying, you know, this is a really interesting special situation that you guys right. should look at. The next paragraph was about Saudi equities which is way more controversial and has been way less good as an investment. But people said they would fire me if I didn't stop talking about magic internet money. So that was the vehemence of the reaction. Now, when it went from 500 to 175 between kind of May and September, I was like, huh, maybe I was wrong, but I wasn't wrong. And then I got more excited and, you know, the rest is history in terms of, of us kind of getting involved. But the key is that that risk is still there. People are still afraid. It's getting better. How will it get better? More people listen to conversations like this. More people will say, hey, I couldn't get into A16Z. Geez, they raised $500 million from Yale and Princeton and Stanford. And what? What? Okay, I need to do that. And, you know, figure will go public and BlockFi will get funding from some big financial institution. And people go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Right. Can't call them a bank, blockchain financial. Can't call them a bank, but they're basically a bank and they do interesting things. And, um, you know, oh, I can get paid 8% interest. I'm going to try that. And people try it. In fact, that, that's how we got our first pension fund, right? The CIOs actually were interested personally. They convinced their board. I'll tell you the funny story about the board. So the first board meeting we go to, two and a half hours which is actually a good thing, right? Because that mm-hmm. means they're asking the right questions. They didn't kick us out after 15 minutes. We get to the end and uh, it's a police pension fund. And the chairman is actually a policeman. And 
I'm not making this up. Harley outside, full uniform, gun and helmet on the table, glasses, mustache, like he's right out of central casting. Right. And he says, so you're telling me I got to go tell my guys that I just voted to put their retirement money in drug dealer money? Mm. Like, no, no. Okay, I, I see your point. <laughs> right. But no, you are not going to tell them that. What you're going to say is as fiduciaries, we have an obligation to make seven and a quarter percent. I look at bonds making three. Okay. I look at stocks making, you know, zero to four percent at best. How do I get to seven? I got to find alpha. How do I find alpha? I invest in innovation or illiquidity premium. We're going to do it through innovation, through venture capital in this emerging technology, because this is a technology, it's not a thing. And we're going to invest the bulk of the money, not in Bitcoin itself, but in the companies that are going to facilitate the ecosystem that allows cryptocurrency to flourish. He's like, okay, I can get behind that. Right. And the next day in the newspaper, headline, you know, Fairfax County does drug dealer money and he's quoted saying, no, we're fiduciaries and we have to search for alpha. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, all the things I That's said. perfect. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and he was great. And, and it's one of these things where we know it's coming. We know that I call it the great wallow money. Uh, we know it's coming. Uh, it will take time. And uh, just more conversations like this, more people, you know, reading your research, more people seeing Paul Tudor Jones say, I put 2% of my, you know, fund in it. Uh, he's a pretty smart guy. And, uh, you know, he says something, he doesn't say, look, I, I think it's the best technology in the world. He doesn't say, you know, fiat world's going to die. He says, I want to invest in the fastest horse. <laughs> it's a probability bet, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not betting the entire, you know, farm on it either, you know? Yeah. And it's the but, asymmetry, right? If, if, yeah. if, if I have to put 50% of my assets in a safe asset and use lots of leverage to make 7%, or I can put a small amount with no leverage and make 20 or 30%, why wouldn't I try that? Because there's actually less risk in an unlevered asset. You know, one of the fallacies of, of our day, and Howard Marks writes about this all the time, is leverage can never make a bad investment good, but it can make a good investment bad. Right. And that's what every one of these crises is all about, is over leverage because people are being forced to take risks that they don't want to take and that they're not comfortable with, and they want to reach for return. And so they take this free money and they lever up and they find themselves in trouble. That's why bankruptcies are going to rise. That's why people are going to lose a lot of money and um, why other assets beyond traditional stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities are going to do well. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and this conversation has been fantastic. I know you got to run and I, I want to end this with, uh, I pulled something from your actual latest quarterly investor letter, which was again, fantastic. But something that really jumped out to me and I think applies specifically to this space and people are in this as well, is you had this great uh, intro on Charles Darwin. You had a great quote about uh, how he says, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Mm -hmm. And you say, quote unquote, the same is true in investing. It is always those with the least knowledge who are the most certain of an outcome, take the largest position and are then surprised when things go against them. The more you actually know about any investment opportunity, the more uncertain you are of the outcome because you understand completely all the things that could go wrong and could invalidate your thesis, which I think is oh. spot on, right? The more you get kind of further down the crypto rabbit hole, you almost start to question 
not necessarily the long-term kind of value proposition of it, but uh, you start to question what could go wrong, right? So my, my yeah. final question to you is, if you had to name kind of a biggest threat to, we'll say the Bitcoin, you know, crypto yeah. uh, thesis, long thesis you guys have, what is kind of that, that biggest threat? Okay. It, it, well, a couple of things. One, appreciate you actually reading the letter. Two, uh, I love that you picked that particular quote. You know, I'm a big uh, Richard Feynman fan and, you know, he says doubt is, you know, one of the great superpowers mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, those who don't have it end up, you know, getting in trouble. And, uh, you know, I talk about edge. That's my thing. Hashtag edge. And to me, doubt is, is one of those things and skepticism. And I've never met anybody in this space that I admire and think is really smart who didn't start skeptical. Right. And I put myself in that category, right? I, I, I missed, right? I, look, I was there in 2013, early, way before a lot of people. And as my son reminds me all the time, dad, you didn't lever up the house and put it all in Bitcoin. Ah, good point. <laughs> You're like, thanks. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah, that. excellent point. Thanks. Um, because I had skepticism and, and, and skepticism is good and it forces you to do more work. But, but to the Darwin point, the, the goal of a great investor um, not, not the goal. The to be a great investor, you must constantly seek variant opinions, mm-hmm. right? Opinions that are different than yours, and you got to find reasons why you're wrong. And so, it's what I do all the time. And so I say, I don't mind being wrong. And so, for me, the thing that I worry about is um, that ultimately for Bitcoin to be successful, it has to scale. And I have this thesis that I believe that because it is digital gold, it could have a a market cap equivalent to gold. But in order for that to happen, there has to be distribution from Mm -hmm. the hodlers and the whales to the masses. And again, if it were me, look, (laughs) whoever Satoshi san is, he, she, they, Genius, right? I, 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 I'm not in their category. I, I don't think I'm that smart. But the one thing I would have done differently is I would have done some sort of massive airdrop to give everybody access so that we could have a broader ownership. Um, because I think that is, I, that's the one thing that concerns me is that the hodlers are going to hodl and that the whales are going to hold and that the stranded coins are never going to move and that the if, if all it ever trades is the 20 or 30% on the margin, this can't get to the size and scale that I believe it needs to, to be ubiquitous and to have the, the kind of upside that I, I do. So I, I worry about that. Now, price can fix that, right? If the price continues to rise, the hodlers will actually sell some and the whales will actually sell some. And more people will will uh, have ownership, but I. The second piece of that is, in order for that to happen, I actually think they need to do, we'll call them Satoshi splits. I think a mm. million dollar price will scare people off. Yeah. But if we divide it into Satoshis and reprice as Satoshis, then it's available to everybody. And the right. same reason that stocks split, it has no economic consequence, but people will buy a $100 stock or a $5 stock more than a $1,000 stock or you know, Berkshire Hathaway at, at $300,000. Yep. 
I remember, when, remember when Apple Apple did that. I, I yes. bought in right after it too because it was the same thing. You know, an eighty dollars stock is is much more attractive than you know an eight hundred dollars stock. Yeah, um, and you know the flip side of that is people think, oh well, the FOMO's better if it's a big number. Okay, fine, but I. We, but people we coming we, from the we equity don't win world, if it's not if it's not broadly held. And you might because you've seen this flow around Twitter, obviously too. You, the idea that you don't have to buy a full Bitcoin, right? I think that's also Correct. a misunderstanding because when you look at, and I think we'll get into fractional ownership eventually and all that, but if you're looking at Amazon, for example, right? And having that, you know, whatever it is today, $21, $2,200 yep. a share, yep. that could easily scare people who don't have, you know, eight, nine grand to put into or buy a full Bitcoin. Some people might just dismiss it for that reason yes. and don't know that you could you could buy $20 worth if you wanted to. Yep. And and that will come. And and. And so then, then the second piece of that, to your, to your point on that, is, is once people do realize that you can do fractional ownership, then it comes down to ease of use. And right now, it's not super easy. It's pretty easy. I mean, there, there are ways to do it, but, but it's not super easy. And mm-hmm. you know, when it is as easy as sending an email and it's invisible or making a cell phone call, you know, that'll be a big right. deal. So I do, I do again, they're, they're not big worries because I actually think all of this will be overcome and that inevitable the inevitability of this is is real you know there's so many people that worry about oh the technology and you know some other thing will replace it nope open source fixes that um and you know paul rumor paul romer you know he won the nobel prize a couple of years ago it's kind of funny i i actually said i read his paper in 1987 on the law of increasing returns when i was in business school and I've been saying for 30 some odd years, the guy's going to win the Nobel Prize. Thankfully, he finally did. But it is genius because it says it's not the best technology. It's the technology that comes and gets critical mass first. So it's the whole network effect. Could Just as mind. we were talking about the internet, the internet froze. So it's yeah, actually right. a good time to, to sign off. I was going to say, that's uh, perfect. Well, enjoyed uh, the conversation. Really appreciate and, uh, it. Already looking forward to the next time we can catch up. No, love to do it. And, and look, I, I, I look forward to uh, being included in one of the, uh, the board meetings at McDonald's someday. So Absolutely. Next one, you're there. All right. All right. Have Be a good. great one. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon. <laughs>